The Dalmatian Connection. By Norma King. Chapter 7, Continuing Jean's Story. Written by Norma King in 2010. Revised and published by Lorraine Kelly for GoldfieldStories.com, May 2020. The Zuvalis made their third and final move at the settlement when Mark became manager of the Lime Kiln operation. Jean said she bought a kitchenette, a table and four chairs from a lady who was leaving the settlement. She also bought a big table from a woman at Naritha. The table had carved legs and could seat ten people. I had Lino on the bedroom floor in the room we called the lounge. My husband bought a small second-hand lounge, and it fitted in nicely, and we called the other room the fridge room, and we had a double bed out on the veranda as well. We only had two single beds inside. In the summer months, we slept outside on the enclosed front veranda. In the other room I had a big kitchen, and I had my own refrigerator there, and then there were two seven-cubic-feet kerosene refrigerators in the other room, and I had to look after them, they were for the men who were batching. They kept their meat and beer and ice there. We all had tilling lamps for our lighting. I had to get a permit for my refrigerator. It was in the war years, and they said the army came first and when you made an application you had to put in what sort of a house it was and how many people lived in it and I had to wait 15 months before I could get one. A friend of mine, a great laborite, applied for one. She had a little girl and a baby, only a few weeks old. They said she couldn't have one. The girl had been on correspondence lessons, and she was very bright. Well, the girl wrote to the Prime Minister in Canberra, and she ended up saying that he should come over here and see if he would put up with what we do. We only get meat twice a week. And how would your wives like to give your children withered vegetables? It was a labor government, and she said if that's your labor government you can stick it. She had a permit in two weeks while I had to wait 15 months for mine. I still use the cooler when I had the fridge. I had lino on the main floors and sleepers on the kitchen floor, the enclosed veranda and the porch. We used to buy sleepers from the Commonwealth Railways, and they used them too for burning in the kilns. They used to buy a couple of thousand and some that were good ones, we used them. We adds them so they fitted in together on the floor. I scrubbed them with a broom on washing day with the hot water from the copper and just swept it out the back door. The rooms with lino got a washover. There was another building there, like a hall. We had a proper floor put in it. The company sent out the boards, and there was filter cloth and bags around it. We'd have dances there. In the springtime, when there were a lot of stirred peas around and other flowers out, the men wouldn't let us into the hall until they'd decorated it with the flowers and that. The women did all the cooking, old Mrs. Lowe and me and the other women. I used to send into Jackson's and Collins Street, Kalgoorlie, where we used to get fruit cake and ham and so on, and the bachelors would pay for them. They'd get a 10-gallon keg of beer, and we'd sell it for sixpence a glass. Any profit we made we used it to buy another keg for the next dance we had there. My husband would send a truck over to Naritha and bring out the families that wanted to go to the dance at the Lime Kilns. And the following week we would all get in the truck and go to the dance at Naritha. One man, Tommy Gardner, could play the accordion and another girl and her brother could play the accordion, and the schoolmaster at Naritha could play the violin. That was the music we had to dance to. There were two old slaw fellows who looked after the kerosene tins full of water for the coffee or tea. I had a number two meter stove by then and they heated the water on that. Everyone went to the dances, nobody stayed at home. Even if they couldn't dance, they went there to talk and laugh. There were only six houses in Naritha, and one family had six kids. Another had ten, but a lot of them had grown up. Another family had nine, some still going to school, some had left, and a couple were working at the lime kilns. We had good fun at that time. You know that painter, Jack Absalom, well his father was a ganger at Naritha at the time and Jack was only a little kid. 
He had a brother and a little sister. His mother, Bridget, was really nice and she often used to sing at the dances, on the banks of the Wabash. The little girl was the youngest child, and when the tea and sugar train came into Naritha, they would go along with the little girl in a wheelbarrow. The kids in Naritha used to pick stirred peas and sell them to passengers on the train. When Jean had more boarders, she did her cooking in the old boarding house conducted earlier by one of the Kesey daughters. One of her boarders was a Scotchman, and Jean said. He liked his booze, and on one night when he was coming home from Kalgoorlie on the fast goods train he got sick. He had had too much to drink, and when he vomited down the toilet, he lost his false teeth. He said he had a rough idea where he had lost them and asked the guard to ask the gangers to keep an eye open for his teeth. One day, about a week later, the guard handed me one of those Commonwealth envelopes and inside were Scotty's false teeth. There was another time when there was an Englishman called Frank, and an Aussie called Bob, a Scotty and myself there, someone told Matt that Bob had cut his foot and there were maggots in the cut. Matt went and saw that there were maggots there. He washed Bob's foot and told him he had better go into town. We didn't have a pedal radio or a medical chest in those days. We didn't have them until the flying doctor started and then all outlying places had them. The men had all got on the booze and Bob must have cut his foot on some broken glass. There was some wine left in the cask the men were drinking it again. My husband threw it out the door. Bob wouldn't go into town and told Matt he could fix it up for him. He did. The Aussie bloke, Frank, lost his false teeth and for days he would go around kicking any mound of dirt over, looking for his teeth. He never found them, and sometime later he got some new teeth. Another time, there was this Yugoslav fellow, I forget his name, who got lost while out in the bushwood cutting. We couldn't find him anywhere. We got in touch with the police, and they sent out a policeman and a black tracker. They loaded up a truck and the schoolmaster from Naritha, I think his name was Stan Jones, said he wanted to go too. They searched until dark and went out again the next morning. My husband said they went out about 15 miles in the direction where the man had been cutting wood but couldn't find him. Anyway, the police and the black tracker and another aboriginal came out and ran besides the truck. My husband said they told him look. That's where he sat. I couldn't see anything, and then the black tracker called over to the policeman and told him that the man had taken off his underpants and buried them in some soft dirt there. He wouldn't touch it until the police came along. The policeman found the underpants and then they went along, and they still hadn't found him, and they must have gone 60 miles, and then they came to the railway line. They crossed over and found him. He was coming towards them, and he was okay. He had all his clothes on but the other things he had, his axe and his water bag they never found from that day to this. They don't know why he buried his underpants. He never spoke. He did speak to me when we were in the truck, but he was talking back in time. We were back in time to catch the train because in those days you could stop the passenger train at the siding. You had a disc that you held up, and the train would stop. Then afterwards they cut that out, and you had to go to Naritha. We were 10 miles from Naritha, but our siding would be a quarter of a mile away, and they were in time to catch the train and take this chap to town, and they had him in hospital for a while, and then he got all right. Apparently, there were mental disturbances in that family. He then went to work on one of the wood lines and got lost again. They sent him away afterwards down to Heathkit Asylum, and after he was there for a while, he turned up at a cousin's place in Carnegie Street, Fremantle. They found out where he had come from and in the finish they sent him back to the old country. A cousin of his had gone the same way. The government paid his fare to Yugoslavia. He had a wife and kitty there. While Jean was the longest-term female resident at the Lime Kilns, and at one stage the only one, there had been some other women living there at various intervals over the years and also a few children. The Zuvalas did not have any children themselves, 
But Jean was auntie to all of the other children in the district. Instead of children, she had pets. She had three cats, five dogs, budgerigars, Naritha parrots, which can be found only in that area, and looked after orphaned animals. One of these was a bull calf. The bull roamed around the settlement, eating anything it could find. It went inside camps and ate food where doors were left open and even ate soap. The bull became such a nuisance that Jean was forced to get rid of it. Jean said. Some of the people there couldn't speak English. My sister-in-law doesn't speak very good English today, and she has been out here for many years. One of the women who used to live at the lime kilns now lives in Kalgoorlie and speaks fairly good English and the others have gone down Middle Swan and Spearwood Way. In those days I couldn't speak Slav, I could only understand it. When those two English women left, there were only Slavs. I would listen to them for a while. I knew what they were talking about but couldn't talk back. They were talking about things in the old country, and when I went to Yugoslavia some time later and came back, I could talk about the village because I had met a lot of people there that they used to talk about. After the war years, I learned to speak Yugoslav, and then I didn't feel out of it. All the Zuvalas have hyphenated names. Mine is Zuvala Dorda. After the war started, aliens in Australia had to register, and Jean was told she had to register at the nearest police station. She went there and told the policeman that this was the first and last time she was going there, as she was not an alien, had been born in Australia and had lived here all of her life. Jean was as good as her word, and there were no repercussions. When she had any spare time, Jean read books and did fancy work. I think if I didn't have my fancy work and reading, I'd have gone crazy. I joined the Mechanics Institute Library in Kalgoorlie. Our agent, old Mr. Gear, fixed it up for me, and I used to get books sent out in a kerosene tin. That's when I was out at the lime kilns. Some church group used to send out a pile of books for people along the line, and I got a lot of books from them, and when I read them, I used to give them to the butcher on the tea and sugar train to pass along to people along the line. I used to say if I could have read brown paper, I'd have done that too. My mother lived in Kalgoorlie, and she used to send me out things to read. I used to save every piece of paper and string. You couldn't go to a shop and buy any because there were no shops. If you ran out of anything, you borrowed from one another, even in the line of money. We had to pay cash for everything we got off the tea and sugar train. Someone in the camp always had a couple of hundred pounds, and we would borrow some of that and pay it back next payday. One day during the Second World War, in 1944, Jean said a few Spitfires flew overhead, and when they reached the railway line, they turned west, towards Kalgoorlie. Later, someone sent them a message that one of the aeroplanes had crashed about 12 miles north of their camp. As they had vehicles they requested they help search for the plane. They said that a plane would come out and when it was above the crashed aircraft, they would light a flare to show its position. Jean went out in one of the trucks and as it was winter, the sea breeze came in. She said. It was bitterly cold, we put a mattress on the back of the truck and drove through bush where no one had driven before. My brother-in-law, who was driving the truck, said he wasn't going to drive anymore. It was starting to get dark. My husband and some other men started to walk towards where they estimated the plane would be, and when it got too dark to see, they camped where they were until morning. I went back home in the truck. The next morning the men continued their search and came across the crashed aircraft. It was upside down, and the pilot had managed to get out of the plane. One of the men said, he got out through a hole that you would hardly expect a cat to get through. They got lost when they were returning to the camp. One man said they were going the wrong way because he could see gum trees instead of mulga. They went in a different direction and finally reached the railway line where a section car had been driving up and down to alert the men of its presence. The train took them back to the camp. This was the second time the pilot had crashed a plane. He had done so once before in Darwin. Two or three days later, 
Some Air Force fellows came up with a big semi-trailer and went to the plane and stripped it all down and carried it back to the Air Force base in Kalgoorlie. Someone there told us that it was one of the Spitfires that had fought in the Battle of Britain. The story of the crashed plane never got in the newspapers because stories like that were banned in wartime. In the 1960s the Nullarbor was thrown open for development and in 1963, Eric and Ruth Swan and their family arrived in the area and established Kananda Station. As their property took in the lime kilns, the Swans and Zuvalis saw a fair amount of each other and became good friends. Kananda swallowed us up. We used to buy all of our water from Kalgoorlie at one pound a hundred gallons, and when they put down a bore at Kananda, about eight miles away from where we were, they found water. We then used to cart water from there. It was good, but there were a lot of chemicals in it, and that water was hard. When I did my washing, I put in pieces of soap or washing powder in the copper and brought the water to boil. The scum would come to the top, and I would take that off and then boil my clothes in the softer water. When my husband bought me a washing machine, and before I put the water in it I treated the water the same way. It was a petrol-driven washing machine, and you would kick it over like you would a motorbike. It was double work, but I didn't have all of that rubbing and scrubbing like I did when I first went up there. Mark and Jean helped the swans when they held their annual Gymkhana's Fort Royal Flying Doctor service, and Mark provided the beer for the first Gymkhana. I remember that first Gymkhana. It was really good, and we had a fabulous time. They barbecued a lamb on a spit, and everybody helped. The ones after that got bigger and bigger. I've never been to those at Ralina. I still think the ones at Kananda would take some beating. The people would come out in their trucks and cars and put up tents. When they held the last one there, out of all of us who went there and who were from the lime kilns, there were only two of us left, Wally Scuds and me. Ruth and Eric Swan remembered Jean and Mark's hospitality. When Eric first went there to establish the station, any time he went through Jean gave him meals and put him up for the night. Eric said. There was always a meal and a glass of beer at Jean and Mark's. It was the same for any of my staff when we were setting up the station. When our equipment came and was left at Lime Siding Jean would take charge of that. When Jean and Mark moved to Kalgoorlie they still had the open house policy. We used to call it the Atta Street Motel and stayed there when we came in from Kananda. One time, there were others staying there at the same time as us, and there were seven children in sleeping bags on the lounge room floor, and all the men slept in one bedroom and the women in the other. At one stage we even left a caravan in their backyard. Nothing was too much trouble. They loved the children and the children loved them. Because Jean operated the pedal radio, she used to send and receive telegrams for the swans. Ruth said. One of my first jobs at Kananda was entering up all the telegrams in a logbook and Jean must have spent hours and hours on the radio. I remember one funny telegram. I had sent off an order to a grocer and received a telegram back saying that they didn't supply such items. The phone numbers had got mixed up, and the order had gone to the Catholic Presbytery. One memory I have of Jean was of her bottle feeding a goat, and my daughter Suzanne and one of the Sims children sitting watching her. Jean said that she became good friends with the operators at the Flying Doctor base in Kalgoorlie. There was Lee Cordell, Charlie Prydu, and Hedley Skipworth. When Hedley was on, you'd get recipes and everything from him, and we went up to Charlie's once for tea. One day two young women called in at the settlement. They were riding tandem on a bicycle and were on their way to Sydney. There was a car following them. They rested there for a while and told Jean that they would never do it again. Another one we saw going through was the champion cyclist, Hubert Hopperman. Mrs. Lowe and myself were too late to get down on the flat where he rested, and he was gone before we could get down close enough to talk to him, but we saw him. And Jimmy Woods the pilot, when he flew over, he used to throw the newspaper out and whoever picked it up read it first and then passed it on to the others. 
One day, he threw down a bag of lollies in one of those bags people used when they were airsick. There were for two little boys who were there. They were both called Peter but one was Australian and the other was Slav. I kept that newspaper for years because he had written on it that it was his last trip over, because he was going to take part in the centenary air race, from London to Melbourne, or from somewhere to England and there. The first time I ever went in a plane was in 1979 when I went to America. One year, about 1934, an autogyro landed there to get some petrol. It was being delivered to New Guinea. They said they landed in Adelaide for a while, and there was some excitement there. People left their jobs and came out to look at the autogyro taxiing up to the petrol bowser. That time when there was the centenary air race, the people who were going over by car to Melbourne asked us if they could get hot water and stuff when they called in. They camped that night on the flat. The road to the eastern states went in a different direction to what it is now. You went as far as Rolina on the north side of the line, and from there you cut down to Cocklebitty and went on from there. One of the women who was going through to the eastern states by car and had camped for a night on the flat, had reported in a newspaper that she had never seen such a godless and childless place in her life. We were really mad about that. The night she was there it was very windy, and when the sea breeze comes up, it blows everything around. It wasn't a childless place as there were two children here and we had boiling water and everything for them. We spoke to them all right because we were so pleased to see people going through, because it would break the monotony. Another time a man on a motorbike called in. He said he was a school teacher from somewhere in the eastern states, and was doing this in his holidays. He told us he could teach the children geography better by seeing these places and telling them what he had seen, rather than by reading it from a book. He intended going to Europe in his next holidays. The last I heard of him was that someone had found him dead near his motorbike. He was somewhere in the north of Australia. He had got lost and died of thirst. I think the man's name was Jardine. Another day Harry Butler, the naturalist, called in. He had some small snakes in a dampish bag, to keep them cold and sleepy. The Dutch lady at the settlement had killed a snake near their fowl house and wanted to preserve it, and she'd put it in a big jar with methylated spirits. She showed it to Harry Butler, and he said that the best way was to cut along the snake's stomach so that the spirits got in, otherwise it would go bad. There were three men with Harry Butler, I can't remember one's name, and the other two were Mark DeGraff, the school teacher and Jim Atkinson, I think he worked for Channel 7. I gave them all a cup of tea. They had all these little geckos with them. I think that is what they had gone out for. Vincent Serbenti, another naturalist, came out once and then his brother Dominic. They must have been a Kundili because Bob Stewart was with them. One time, I can't tell you what year it was, Mr. McDougall, I think he had something to do with the government, called in to see if they could find any Aborigines in the area. It was before they dropped that bomb at Woomera. They wanted to make sure there were no Aborigines left in that area before they dropped the bomb. Another time I met an Aboriginal who was really well-dressed, nice and clean, and he asked me if I had seen a black lady on the tea and sugar train. I told him I had, and he said that it was his wife and she had just come out of hospital. They wouldn't let him go on the train, so he was walking. I made a sunshine milk tin full of tea and made some meat and some jam sandwiches. I took them down to him, and he said thanks very much lady. He was coming from Kalgoorlie and going to a place called Ryan's Well. There used to be a kind of station there. I think a chap by the name of Mackenzie ran it. I told my husband about it and as they were going to Naritha that afternoon they gave him a lift there. It was 10 miles from our place, and he had another 14 miles to go. Sometime after that, the aboriginal came back and gave me a small meteorite. It was his way of saying, thank you. I took it to Mr. Moriarty at the lapidary shop in Kalgoorlie and asked him if he would polish it for me, 
but he said it would take the value off if he did that. He encased it in a thin setting of silver so I could put it on a chain and hang it around my neck. One day I was coming back from Naritha in a utility when I met Mr. Camilleri coming from Ralina, and he and another chap were in this car, and they were chasing someone who had stolen a car. Another time a man with a boy, aged about 10 or 11, called in and my husband asked me to give them something to eat. We never turned anyone away from the door. I didn't have very much there. I had some chops, the last meat I had until the next tea and sugar came through. My husband told me to cook them with some eggs. We gave the food to them, and the next thing we heard was that the car had broken down the other side of Ralina, and the man had to stop the train. The police picked him up afterwards as the car had been stolen. There were other times when stolen cars had gone through here. The detectives would come and ask us if we had seen a certain car go through, or they would come and tell us to let them know on the pedal radio if we saw such and such a car. They caught a lot that way. Another time we had this man working at the lime kilns and my brother-in-law had a leather coat and some money, and when he came home one day he found these and the man were missing. We got onto the police on the pedal radio. I described this man as having ginger hair, a freckled face, slim build and a medium height. They caught him in Kalgoorlie, and he had got rid of the leather coat, and there was only nine pounds left of the money. One day, it was in the early hours of the morning, I heard a sound. I thought it was a dingo at first. The dogs were barking something awful. I told my husband that he had better go down and see what it was and to take the night fireman with him. They went down and saw it was this old Slav fellow called Peter. He had only his pajama pants on and wet himself. He was digging in the dirt, and he said to my husband, Where is Joe? The police are going to take my wine away. Joe was his brother. My husband sent the fireman back to get his brother in between the three of them, one carrying a hurricane lamp and the others helping him, they got him back to his camp. They told him to get back to bed and stay there, and my husband told the fireman that when he went up to put a fire in every half hour, to call in and see if Peter was all right. So when the fireman knocked off his shift, he went to see Peter. He was sitting on this wine keg leaning against the wall, and his hands were hanging down. The fireman said, What in the name of heaven are you doing there? And Peter just fell on the floor and was dead. We sent for the police and Sergeant Matthews came out, and he brought a coffin with him. He stayed the night and said he would go up in the morning. Before the police came, they had picked up old Peter and put him on his bed, wrapped this sheet around him, put the cat outside and closed the door. The next morning the police examined old Peter and decided there were no suspicious circumstances, and that he had died from alcoholic poisoning. He used to drink an awful lot. In the morning he would get this basin of wine with a little bit of water in it and dip bread into it, and he'd go off to work and do a darn good day's work. He was about 60, and when he died, he had nothing left but a few groceries and three or four shillings on the table. They took the coffin on the train to Kalgoorlie and buried him in a pauper's grave. Life at the lime kilns was mainly busy cooking, washing and ironing. Sometimes, before my husband was manager, I used to go out in the bush with him a couple of times a week, and help him or to keep him company, or I'd cook a meal and take it out to him with the driver on the second trip out, and go home with the first trip after lunch. When Mark became boss, he was around the kilns all the time, supervising. To make a few bob the men used to go out and work all day Saturday instead of half day. Mark would go out in the utility, and I always stayed home. He'd go around where the men were working and see that they chopped down only the trees they were allowed to, as with this ranger business, you are supposed to leave certain trees, and not chop them all out. When any blasting was done, he never told me until I heard it go off, because when he wasn't very long in this country, he went to help some friends and they had never used the blasting before, and Mark bit the fracture off and was putting it in the detonator, and he blew these fingers off. 
that's the only one he had on that hand. In 1965 my sister and I went to Yugoslavia. We went by boat and were away for three months. We had a week in London and went over to Calais by boat. From there we went by train to Zagreb. We spent a week there then went to Sprit by train. We went from there by boat, a four-hour journey, to Slurin where my husband came from. I stayed with his mother for a while and then went to a couple of villages, where we had friends who had once lived here and then had gone home. We were in a bus on our way to one of these villages, and I said to my sister, a man who worked at the lime kilns lives here and blow me down if he gets on the bus. I sang out to him, and he nearly fell over. We went and spent a weekend at his place. My husband didn't go with us as he said that if he went back, he didn't think he could come back here again. He had said goodbye to his mother once, and he didn't want to go through that again. Later, he regretted not having gone with us. By this time the limestone in the area was harder to find. A man was employed to gather limestone near Rolina for a time, but as it proved too costly to freight the stone to the site, and as the men had to go further and further out for wood, in 1965 the company decided to close the operation. The company no longer belonged to the Kesey brothers. Several years earlier, when one of the brothers died, the rest of the shareholders had sold out to a group of mining and businessmen in Kalgoorlie. The lime kiln operation closed on 5th of December 1965. The Kundili mission purchased all of the buildings. They bought the iron, the tanks and the stoves, as those houses that had women in them all had stoves. Some had left iron bedsteads and wardrobes behind, and we told the mission to take all of those. I gave my white top table to people further on and the rest of the stuff to people who took them away. All that was left there afterwards were just the lime kilns. The last people to leave the settlement were Jean and Mark Zuvela. They moved into a house in Varden Street. Mark did not work for a while and then got a job on the Lakeview and Star Gold Mine. He cleaned the offices and did some gardening around the offices. He stopped work when he was aged 72. Jean got a job cleaning at Mrs. Scott's Australia guest house and was there for a little over two years. She then went on a trip to Fiji and when she came back worked at the Big K Laundry for four years and then worked at the Vienna Coffee Lounge for a few hours each day. Mark died in 1981. Jean moved into a house in Lyle Street and after that one in Atta Street. Later, when she needed care, she went into the Little Sisters of the Poor in Kalgoorlie. She died there at the age of 86 or 87. She was talking to someone there about her life at the Lime Kilns. I miss all the lovely sunsets you used to see and the sea breeze you could hear before it got there. You could see the dust too, and someone would yell, shut the windows. End of chapter 7. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. For photos, more information and blogs, please visit goldfieldstories.com. Thank you.